Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to Cinelit. Today we are fuel-injected and chrome-loving as we tackle the nitro-infused franchise, the Mad Max series of films. It has been 40 years since Mad Max 2, arguably the breakout of the franchise. So we thought it was a good time to uh, take a look at that series of films and uh, yeah, and just see what we think about it and see how, how they stood the, set, stood the test of time and is there a future? for a dystopian future-style franchise. I am joined, as ever, by my co-host, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. All uh, revved up, ready to go, tank full of gas, and, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, heading out into the wilderness on this one. So it uh, should be good, should be good. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm your host, Adam Marsh, and I'm not a car guy, Daryl. I'll tell you that right yeah, now. Me, me so- neither. So, so we might we might start running out of um, car puns. Uh, uh, we, we've kind of gone through about fifteen of them in the yeah. first few minutes. So we I, I think I think we we ran out about a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, we're, we're not car guys. But I think that's the great thing about Mad Max is is that uh, you can become a petrol head for for a couple of hours, even if you're not one. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the fascinating things because I was comparing this to the Fast and Furious films because I was thinking we've not really had a car franchise. In the last 30 years, and we're like, well, actually, the Fast and Furious one's arguably the, the, the most successful franchise of all time. Yeah. Is, yeah. is you know, is, is, is a car, it's a car franchise. But this one takes a very different approach to cars. Fast and Furious franchise, it's like specific cars. It's like, oh, look at that car, and it's sexy. Oh, yeah. Whereas this one's more like, just put your foot to the pedal and drive. Kind yeah, of. yeah. And and also, you know, we've made a car out of dustbins and, and bits of wire, you know, and whatever we can find lying around the, the, the dump. So let's 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 head back to the to the late seventies then, because this 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 first movie was rooted and born in the exploitation um, scene in Australia in the late seventies. Um, we got a lot of great films, but this one arguably broke most of the uh, rules and regulations and laws over health and safety for stunt work, uh, particularly in this in this franchise, didn't it? Because it was crazy the stunts in this first movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's low key. When 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 you look back on the series now, this the first Mad Max seems a little bit of a low key movie, but certainly not not in terms of its car action and so on. But I think in terms of its general storyline, in in fact, you know, the, the 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 series as a whole is is often described as being you know set in a sort of post apocalyptic world, and the thing about the first Mad Max. In, in throughout the series, you know, the, the the first actual reference from a character to the fact that they're in a post-apocalyptic setting doesn't come, I don't think, until um, Tina Turner's character in Beyond Thunderdome mentions something about the day after. And the first Mad Max, it's just set in sort of exploitation world. You know, it's, it's how how different is Mad Max 
from the setting of something like Wake in Fright or Long Weekend or Wolf Creek, you know, they're, they're, they're all set in that same sort of Australia. And is is this even a post-apocalyptic film or, or could it be argued that that it's just it's just life in the outback, you know? It's certainly a recognisable world, isn't it, when you watch yeah, it? I yeah. mean, arguably from the second film onwards, the world starts to look less recognisable as, as as we know it. Uh, but in that first one, there's there's streets, there's towns, there's little villages, there's 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 recognisable things to hang your hat on. Yeah, and as I say, it's stuff that you see in other Australian films around the time and and since as well. So you know, I think also the the, the sort of like the bad guys, quote unquote, the 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 bike gang feel like an isolated group rather yeah. than the world is now that like yes. when, when, she, yeah. when she gets to the second film it's like well no everyone's like that you know we're right. we're yeah, the strange ones by yeah, being normal you know they're weird you know and 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 yet by by certainly by by mad max 2 you know you, you're just thinking well yeah this this is how the world is now definitely but um interestingly mad max came out on a double bill over in the uk in 1980 with um, a support to Friday the 13th. And that's that's a damn good fit, I think. I, I think that's a, 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 a good choice of double bill because I, I think at times Mad Max actually riffs on contemporary late 70s, early 80s horror. There's, there's the, 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 the scene with the, the charred arm in, in the hospital and there's the great scene where Max's wife is sort of chased through the woods and you get the great sort of hulking figure that she sort of runs into. And, and th- th- those could both have come out of either a sort of hospital set horror or a, a, a backwards slasher movie of, of that same era. So I think audiences going in for that double bill wouldn't have thought, oh, why, why have these two films been paired together? They'd have, they'd have gone in thinking, yeah, I, I, I like all of this stuff that's being presented to me. I like Jason and Jason's mum and, and the, the teens being killed in Friday the 13th. And I like... This, this stuff that's happening in this Australian movie as well. It's certainly got like a vibe of the sort of like vigilante boom of the late 70s. You know, you yeah, again, it does. Like it connects with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, does, it definitely feels in that in that mode. Um, but it was but it was a hit. It was a hit, you know, yeah. as, as a lot of those exploitation films were made for peanuts and, yeah. uh, and made a fortune. Sure, sure. And I think as the series develops, you're, you, you're getting imagery, as you say, like, uh, I mean, I, I think the characters in, in Mad Max 2 have, have got this sort of um, part punk, part heavy metal, part sort of crusty sort of sensibility to them. And that continues in the rest of the series. But even right from the start of Mad Max, the very first one, you, you've got a sort of punk feel to it. The very first thing we see on screen is it's not only a sign pointing the way to Anarchy Road, but Anarchy's spelt wrong. <laughs> and how, how anarchic does it get, you know? Fantastic. I mean, the thing that struck me as I watched them all together is that it it doesn't feel like Mad Max 2 is a sequel. It feels like Mad Max 1 is a prequel. Yeah. You know, in that in that respect, it doesn't feel like it's building on it. It feels like, well, this is the backstory to the to the great franchise that starts with Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, you know. It's very much in that vibe. Like I've got to do this story, get this story out of the way, and then I can actually tell the story I want to. Similar, yeah. to, I guess, similar in in some ways to the Purge franchise. I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's got that vibe. Yeah, it, they they the Purge started with this very low key thing. I mean, I think I think Mad Max and the Purge both both offer a, a grand, expansive concept, and then they both in their first movie reduce it and 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 minimalize it and sort of say oh yeah there's all this stuff going on outside what you're watching but we're going to focus on this little intimate little story and and then it's it's in the later films that oh we're we're just going to blow up now and and go crazy but the first movie doesn't do that but arguably this franchise is still quite a small franchise because the stories they tell are not particularly 
universe exploring you know it's not like you you think about the mad max universe as as, as modern audiences now have to re- refer to any sort of franchise it's a universe <laughs> you know like marvel universe star wars universe this does this doesn't feel like a universe that has got pardon the pun much fuel left in the tank to explore you're doing beyond. you're doing those car puns again adam yeah. <laughs> it hasn't got much more um to, to give in the, in the sense that once they set that world up in number two yeah. You can't really expand on You expand on it a little bit in the third one and a little bit in the fourth one, but ultimately it's the same world. Yeah, I suppose that sort of goes with the post-apocalyptic territory in that you're, you're, you're telling stories on, on this epic canvas of this, this, this vast wasteland. And so you're showing sort of desert settings and you're showing these sort of towns that have been constructed out of... Uh, um, you know, bits of scrap metal and stuff. But the stories themselves are very intimate and the number of characters involved by by the nature of the fact that the world has supposedly been destroyed, you know, the, the stories are going to be told on this, this vast canvas, but they are going to be very intimate stories involving a small number of characters. And um, it's, 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 it's a, a really sort of intriguing sort of dichotomy that is you know that that um that, that you've got these small stories set on a big stage arguably it was the second one that really made a star of, of mel gibson and yeah, yeah. brought that franchise to, to the to the to the world yeah because of course the, the first one notoriously was dubbed you know most most people only saw it in a u.s um, american dub so exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk, before we, we sort of go on to the series as a whole and go through the films, I want to talk a bit about uh, Max himself, because, um, again, in terms of this sort of intimacy, don't don't you see him in, in the first movie? And then certainly, I, I, I think this becomes more and more prominent, if prominent's the right word, it's probably not the right word. Um, Max is almost like a background figure in these films. He's a background figure in his own story. He's, he's, he's the guy who gets his name in the title. But in every single movie, there are, there are other characters who are more flamboyant, more memorable, carry more of the story. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this through the, through the films as we go. But uh, and he's, he's very sort of taciturn. He's very, he, he doesn't say very much. He dresses all in black, you know. It's I know, I know it's his, his sort of police uniform, but it's also sort of symbolic. But he's almost, um, uh, you know, where every other character is wearing sort of you know coloured dyed hair or feathers in in on their costume, or they've got wild clothes on or whatever. He's he's there just as this straight man, this straight guy in black, not saying very much. Just getting on with his job, you know, and and, uh, and 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 often is not even taking part in the main story. It's a it's a bit like what John Carpenter did later on with the with the Jack Burton character. He sort of did a, a, a comic spin on this this Mad Max idea with Big Trouble in Little China. Having he has us focus on Kurt Russell in a John Carpenter movie as the main character, Jack Burton. And then it turn, it's revealed as the film goes on. He's the sidekick. He's the, he's the comedy sidekick, you know. And, and, and that's sort of the case here with Max. He's, he's, he's like a sort of fringe character in these films. Well, I, it reminds me of, of characters like The Punisher or characters like Elektra from the Daredevil films, where they come out really cool characters and you want to want them, but you think they can't carry their own movies. They need yeah. to be... Yeah. The guy in another movie, the, the character in somebody else's, the Hulk is a perfect example. Yeah, Hulk, yeah. There's one story to tell with Hulk, and that's Jekyll and Hyde, and they've told it about 50 billion times. Yeah. But having him as a supporting character works yeah. perfectly. And I think Max works in a very similar way to that, where the situation, the world, and the plot, and the storyline is already there, and he comes in as a, as a, as a supporting character to to help achieve. Well, yeah, he's, what, what he is, he's, he's a catalyst. Yeah, he's... he's, yeah, he's his his appearance in the story sets things in motion, but the story's happening to other characters, and I think that's the case in every single one of these films. I think one of them. I think one of the main reasons is he doesn't want anything. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, most yeah. characters in films want something, they have a goal, they have a desire. Max just wants to be left on his own. He just yeah, wants yeah. to be, he just wants to survive. That's his, yeah. his, his main goal, which is not massively interesting for a Sure, line, sure. You know. I, I suppose it harks back to, um, I mean, ca- characters in a lot of classic Westerns are like that. And I think it, it came to the fore in the Clint Eastwood Italian Westerns in, in the 60s, you know. But, but even before that, I think you'd seen characters played by people like Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne, who were who were very much like that. You know, it was okay. We're, we're the stars. We're our names over the title, sort of thing. But in the actual storyline, we're just the guy who sort of rides in from out of town. Nobody knows us. We set everything in motion. We kill the the the, the sort of evil sheriff or whatever, and then we ride back out of town again. And um, the, the the townspeople sort of get on with their lives. And there's a sort of element of that here. And as as, as you say in the first movie as well, I think it does riff very much on that sort of Charles Bronson type thing. And again, those sort of those sort of vigilante characters are very, very much like that. Even right up to date with people like Liam Neeson, you know, uh it's it's they're they're there almost as a sort of symbolic figure rather than as a rounded character. And I think that's how Max plays. Yeah, I mean obviously the Western, the man with no name character is definitely an influence to the point where they even call him the man with no name in in Thunderdome. Yeah, even introduce yeah. him as that as, as that man, the man with no name. He's like, okay, sure. there we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's an interesting point we'll come on to later. I think with Beyond Thunderdome and with the Mad Max Fury Road, there's there's some very interesting things to say about the the name of the character and, and why it isn't used. And I, I think there are there are some things we can discuss about that later. But yeah, I think again the series as a whole has got these sort of um, very sort of samurai-like or very sort of spaghetti western-like sort of qualities to it. One one of the things that I love is that um, even though everyone's trying to kill each other and they're sort of fighting over whatever fuel and water are available and so on, there's a genuine sense of respect. Um, at, at the end of Beyond Thunderdome, Max Max is sort of at the mercy of of the the people that he's been fighting all the way through the film. And they just walk away. They just sort of acknowledge him and say, "Say right, the, the story's over. We've 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 achieved what we we've, we've all achieved what we want to achieve, and respect to you. You know, um, we we sort of honour you. And I think there is that sense of honour and that sense of uh, it. It is very sort of samurai like, and and it is the sort of thing that you see in a certain strand of uh, of, of Western cinema. And also, I, I think the the other thing about the series as a whole, and this happens right from the right from the start, right from the first movie, you get characters where we as an audience never know um, who to root for because you see allegiances sort of shift, and characters that have been set up as heroes are suddenly revealed to have some other agenda, or they might change sides in the middle of the movie or something. And again, this is something that seems to continue throughout the uh, throughout the movies. And again, this this the, the Max character is bu- just sort of bumped from from pillar to post, you know. And uh, and and is is he's a character who's used by other characters. And again, that's 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 not you can't imagine a, a sort of superstar actor wanting to play this this type of role where okay your 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 name's in the title but when when you when you read the script you sort of think well I'm I'm not the main figure here you know I'm I'm being sort of passed around from person to person and I'm being told what to do by everyone and I'm being looked down on and I'm being used you know uh yeah it's a very very interesting series in that respect but I do think that it does it does have these sort of antecedents in in this in this strand of honorable type cinema you know in 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 these stories of you know, titanic figures involved in these conflicts, be it in a sort of feudal Japanese setting, be it in the world of Sergio Leone. So are we are we getting the stories as they are told? Because there's, there's, it's the Max that character that's in each film, the same Max character, because the way that they depict him is like a myth. Yeah. In the other, particularly the second and the third films both end with them retelling the story of a man who came and helped, a man who came in, into our world. Yeah. And so as, argument, as you say, there's there's the whole there's the whole 
no name thing in in the third movie as well and in the fourth film i i i i'm not even sure that we're seeing mad max in the fourth film um i i and we'll 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 talk about that in detail when we get on to fury road but uh, yeah you you've really hit on something there adam i i agree entirely we often get a narrator at the start of the film or we get different voices sort of narrating throughout the movies they're not necessarily reliable narrators. And sometimes it's Max himself, and sometimes it's other characters. I think the, the use of the feral kid in, in Mad Max 2 is, is very interesting in that respect, in that he's, he's telling the story from, from, from the future. You know, he's looking back on his own past and, and very much talking about this mythical figure that has sort of come into his life and changed it. And, and we do get we do get Bruce Spence's character spread over two movies, but yeah, there's yeah. no acknowledgement and, that they know each other from the previous movie. No, well, again, Bruce Bruce Spence seems to think he's he's actually said this in interviews. He doesn't think he's playing the same character, yeah. and it's very unclear as to whether he is or not. We're not given any clues as to whether this is the same guy or a different guy. And he he thinks he's playing two different characters. He's always read the role as being like that. Mm. He certainly reacts that way. I mean, when Max finally yeah. meets him, yeah, 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 they don't and they don't have a like are you from the last movie kind of moment. No, it's no, like no. well, there's there's this sort there's this sort of Gibson does this one little thing in in Beyond Thunderdome when he first sees him. There's this little reaction to like. Well, and again, you can't quite read what he's doing because there's a mixture in there of, oh, it's you again, or it could be a reaction of, you look just like that other guy. Yeah. Why, am I, why am I seeing someone who looks like that other guy here? You know, and uh, yeah, and, and it does, I, I think they re- retain that ambiguity. And again, Spence comes into both of those movies and absolutely steals them from the from the star, and Gibson lets him, and George Miller lets him, uh, and and I think this is this is a a, um, a a trait of the whole series is that people can come in and have their little fifteen minutes in the spotlight, and and you're not going to get that in a Tom Cruise movie. You're not going to get that where you've got an actor like a Tom Cruise or a Johnny Depp or someone where they they want to be the sort of focus and they want to be the cool guy, you know. And the, they, can, they can be interesting background characters, but don't, don't step on the toes of the star. The Mad Max series is nothing like that. You can come in and make a massive, massive impact as, as a, a sort of sideline player. Arguably, what steals the second movie is that 13-minute chase sequence towards the end of the film, which Absolutely. is quite possibly one of the best action sequences ever put on film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that, um, I mean, that, that sort of redefined the series because we we'd had car stunt action in the first one. But boy, you 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 I, I don't uh, you can't use the words car stunt action to describe what happens in the second, can you? That's just not adequate. How what you know? There, there are no words to say what happens in that movie. No, um, it's, it's it's a truly like it feels like you're watching something groundbreaking as you're yeah. watching it. You know, you're thinking, my God, this is this is incredible. Yeah, and and it's going on on on. It doesn't feel like it's going to stop, and it's still worth what it's still worthy to what the film is. It's not extending it. I remember my dad talking about uh, Big Trouble in Little China again, yeah. and just saying it's nonstop action, nonstop action. Yeah. And you watch it again; it's not nonstop action. Mm-hmm. Mad Max is nonstop action. When we get certainly when we get to Fury Road, yeah, it's yeah. nonstop action. You know, it's it's in, it's and Mad Max is definitely in that zone of like action ballet. In some yeah. ways, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are there are quiet scenes throughout the Mad Max franchise, but um, even they have a sort of kineticism and a sort of impact to them. You know, even if it's just in dialogue exchanges between characters uh, when when they're sort of taking a breather between car chases. But yeah, the the, the what what you remember as an audience is the the you remember this as a big fast moving action franchise and it is it lives up to that when you see the films and yeah i mean part two which was called the road warrior of course in in some territories 
and that's that's a great title, I think. I I, I like the title Mad Max too, I because that's the one we we, we were given here. But uh, the Road Warriors are, are a really apt title for for this movie. And again, who who is who is the title the Road Warrior describing? Because I'm not sure it's describing Mel Gibson as Mad Max. There are about eighteen characters in that film that could be the Road Warrior. Yeah, well, it's true. Most most people in the Mad Max franchise can be referred to as the Road Warrior because yeah. they're all on the road. They're all like fighting. They're all driving cars. They're all inhaling nitro and all that kind of crazy stuff. So it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's 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 an admirable moniker. But it also, it's what it's a moniker that established the franchise. As you can watch any of these films in any order. Yeah, yeah, and they don't. You don't really need to have seen the other ones. I mean, the first one does have a lot of backstory, but all of that's explained in the opening sequences of every film. You know, uh, you know, it's born in fire and blood. Here's here's Mad Max. You know, <laughs> he's yeah, got a chip yeah. on his shoulder. <laughs> you know, he likes driving cars. Yeah, and, and, and as 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 you say, you know, you can watch the films as a series, but. They, they they don't really sort of link up. They, they each tell an individual story. The telling point here is that a newcomer could come in and watch Fury Road without knowing anything about the other films and enjoy it as a film. Or you could you could watch Beyond Thunderdome and enjoy it as a self-contained movie. I, th- I think you, you you may get more out of the films if 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 you sort of have have watched them all. Specifically on on Mad Max Two. Um, Again, there's this point we've already made about how Mel Gibson really sort of takes a back seat in the films and how many iconic characters are there in Mad Max 2. We've already mentioned the gyro captain, Bruce Spence, but we've, we've got Wes, we've got Humongous, we've got the feral kid. And these are the people that you remember from the film. When someone says Mad Max 2 to you, you don't have an image of Mel Gibson, do you? The first images that pop into your mind are of those those what would be supporting characters in any other movie, and here they're the stars. Yeah, I mean, the, but they're the faces. They are. They are the sort of like, I don't know, they're, they're like they're almost like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle villain characters, where they're just yeah, yeah. crazy characters. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you know, and they, they, they and stand again, out. They, I, I remember seeing the film in 1982 when it when it got UK release, and and. I'd, I'd never seen anything like these people on screen. You know, I really hadn't. Even, even in stuff like The Warriors, um, this this was like a step up from that. This was like, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm watching here, you know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd lived through sort of punk rock emerging in, in, in England and around the world, you know. So we'd, we'd, we'd sort of had all that going on in... in, in the ether for sort of four or five years by the time that Mad Max 2 came out. We've had films like The Warriors and we'd had Escape from New York and things like that. But seeing Mad Max 2 was like, oh right, this this is this is the next step up, you know. And then they do they do throw in a lot of other stuff. It's obviously the, the influence of the sort of like the gay bondage scene that was happening yeah, in yeah. the you know, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and, yeah. and I suppose, you know, we've, we've got the, we've got the sort of glam, well, that all a lot of that ties in with things like glam rock as well, and then you've got things like the Rocky Horror Show and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's all there, but uh, I think Mad Max 2 really sort of ramps it up and, and sort of says, yeah, we're, we're putting this right in your face, you know. And, yeah, I mean, they, they do go for the sort of leather and studs look in that movie, don't they, you know? <laughs> yeah, Vernon Wells is full on. He's he's full on in that in that film, and fantastic. I, you know, I love absolutely. Him. Oh, he's he's brilliant. He well, he, he he's the star of the show. You know, Gibson absolutely just has to take a back seat to him because he's the star of this movie. In in a way that other people are in later films as well. And yeah. the other great thing about Mad Max too, of course, we, we're talking about Gibson being a sort of background figure in the films here. He's he's he actually turns out to be a stooge. <laughs> the, the 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 car chase you've talked about is immense and fantastic. And when it's all finished, we find out that it's all a ruse. Yeah, it, it, it it's it's a con. We're watching the wrong thing, you know. We're we're not watching the main action. And Max has been conned into driving this truck. Do you think he was? Do you think he was conned? I think he genuinely thinks he's on he's on the mission, you know. 
And again, it's it's the big trouble in little China thing. We're watching the wrong thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, I, I must admit, I didn't get the, the idea that Max was being conned. I felt it was more of a sacrificial thing. It's, I think there's ambiguity there. And I think it depends on how you read the character. If you see him as being a hero in the films, yes, he's he's taking part in, in this chase as as a sort of knowing decoy. But I I don't read it like that. I don't think he knows what's going on. Mm. I'm not sure because I'm not sure there's a lot of lot of the, the the village refinery people on that rig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That die, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I I, I think it's in, it, it's it's good that there is that ambiguity. Yeah. I, I I think that's that's the point that Miller tries to sort of keep retain throughout this series is we we never get the full picture. And, and I think that's brilliant about these films. There is this air of mystery and not quite knowing ab- about them and, and being able to debate them on, on talks like this one. You know, it's... Uh, um, and when we get onto Fury Road, I, I think there's going to be all sorts we can talk about in terms of what's going on and what isn't going on, you know. But well, I mean, when talking about being overshadowed in movies, it's kind of hard when you get when you read the cast list and it's like, you Mel, Mel you're going to be playing Max, a uh, road warrior type character, you know, taciturn, you know, unreadable. Yeah, and uh, you're going to be playing the humongous, the Ayatollah of rock and roller. Um, how can you not be overshadowed by a character that's described as the Ayatollah of rock and roller? Your name's Max, and and all these other characters have got amazingly flamboyant names and <laughs> costumes and backstories. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's let's move on to to, to the Hollywood one, uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So, Mad Max one and two were both rooted in the exploitation. Second one had a bit more of a budget, and um, and, and definitely brought them on a world scene. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, you had Hollywood actor Mel Gibson. In the lead role, rather yeah. than he's, he's he's now become Mel Gibson in quotes, hasn't he? Which he wasn't in the first film, and arguably, as you say, became became a star through through the second movie. Yeah. So so we're not watching the superstar in those films, yeah. but yeah, in this one, he is he's he's someone that your mum's heard of. You know? Yeah, you've got Mel Gibson. Yeah. You've still got some Australian actors, but you've got Tina Turner in the role. Yeah. You know, you don't want to lead roles. You've got some more key characters that are. Are filled by Hollywood actors, I guess. You've got yeah, a big yeah, power yeah, ballad yeah, theme yeah. tune to go along with to play on MTV. You know, there's a whole the whole kit and caboodle. So, what do you think is going on with this film? Because it's it's a very uneven movie. Yeah, I would say. well, there's 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 background to tell here, Adam. Um, the Mad Max films came out of a partnership between producer Byron Kennedy and uh, director George Miller. And you'll see Kennedy Miller as as the the production company on the films. They're scouting locations by helicopter for Beyond Thunderdome. And Byron Kennedy was killed in a helicopter crash while they were doing that. And Miller was so close to Byron that he he, he just lost it. He, he, He was just like so distraught and in mourning that he'd contracted to make Beyond Thunderdome. And, um, he, he then just thought, well, my, my heart's not in this. Byron's not here. You know, my, my heart is not in this. And they, as, as well as doing the Mad Max franchise, Kennedy Miller was big on Australian TV. They, they made things like there was that uh, cricket series, Bodyline, that was all about the 1930s Donald Bradman test series when the English cricketers, in order to beat Donald Bradman, just decided we're basically going to throw the ball at him. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and George Miller made a, a, a and Byron Kennedy made a TV miniseries out of that, and they they did um, uh, a political series as well um, called The Dismissal, which which won a few awards in Australia. And there was a director that was involved with them on those because Miller Miller couldn't sort of direct all the episodes, so they got all the directors in. And there was a director called George Ogilvy who came in and directed some of the shows. And he and George Miller became mates. And when Beyond Thunderdome was about to start shooting, Miller was still not in a position where he could really get involved. He he sort of said to George Ogilvy, "Look, will will you will you take a credit on the film and will you come and help? Because I'm I'm not in a position where 
I think I can do this on my own, you know. And that's why you've got the two directors on the film. And uh, I'm not quite sure how the work was was um, sort of divided, whether whether George Ogilvy did a lot of the action scenes or whether uh, he did sort of dialogue scenes or what. But uh, pe- people out there may may know more about that than than, than we do. But uh, but yeah, um, so there were two directors on this. It was a very sort of subdued feel to the shoot because of what had happened, the, the tragedy to the uh, producer. And then, of course, you know, Miller, Miller's going to be under pressure anyway because it's it's a step up for him. It's a, it's a, um, a, a much bigger movie on a bigger canvas. And um, it's amazing that the film turned out as well as it did. Uh, I think it, it is watered down Mad Max, but... It's it's also you could also say it's it's commercial Mad Max. It's an attempt to sort of popularise the franchise, and we've seen this before. You, you know, it's 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 not an isolated incident. We've seen this before with other franchises where they have their sort of cult audience for the first couple of films, and then everybody catches on. It's happened with stuff like Evil Dead. You know, mm-hmm. uh, everybody suddenly catches on to it, and everyone's waiting for the new instalment, and things just get bigger and and. The one, the one that reminded me most recently was the Riddick franchise, which started yeah, off like Pitch very, Black and then went into the Chronicles of Riddick, which was like Conan yeah. in space kind of thing. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of good points about uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It is, it is the weakest of the of the the four, but if this is the weakest film of the franchise, that's that's a robust franchise. It felt it felt a bit like. It didn't know. It didn't have one story it wanted to tell, so it told yeah. about four half-heartedly, yeah. <laughs> half-heartedly. You know, yeah. it, it kind of had a little bit of a Peter Pan Lost Boys kind of thing going on there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it had the Thunderdome, but you think, oh, great yeah. Thunderdome, barely in it, yeah. barely yeah. in it. Thunderdome. Well, it, well, it's it's called Beyond Thunderdome oh, yeah. for a reason because you get thirty minutes in and we're we're done with the Thunderdome. We're away, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, but again, I I think that Thunderdome stuff and all all the all the stuff in the township with Tina Turner and everything that first half hour is the stuff that people remember from the film I think I think one of the interesting things that reminded me of the Thunderdome stuff it reminded me of Tenor recently whereas I don't think the action sequence with the bungee ropes looked as cool as they think it looked no, no, no. and I think Tenet was a bit the same with their backwards fighting scenes and it didn't quite look as cool as, it, as they think it looks and that that felt with, with with Thunderdome as well it was like this this doesn't work really it's a cool idea in yeah. in theory but it doesn't really work on screen um, what, what do we think about Tina Turner in this I think I, I, it's kind of a weird one because I feel like they could have done more with Tina um, yeah. I felt like she was great. She looks fantastic. She acts perfectly fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with her performance. And, you know, in some, some way when you get a pop star cast in something, you think, ooh, I don't think any of that comes across. She feels like she's rooted in that world. Yeah. I just wanted to see more of her. I wanted to yeah, see how yeah. she, she doesn't feel like the main antagonist, I think. That's the biggest problem. Exactly, exactly. And that's because, as, you, as you've said, I think the story sort of dissipated because they're, they're trying to throw too much in, aren't they, you know? And there's probably even an upturned kitchen sink in there somewhere, you know? But uh, I, I think the casting of her, and also to a lesser extent of uh, Angry Anderson from Rose Tattoo, is what what you, you you might call it stunt casting. Although in, in using the term stunt casting, st- the word stunt in the Mad Max franchise means something entirely different. Yeah. And, and of course, what's interesting here is Angry Anderson actually does some of his own stunts, and it looks as though Tina Turner does at one point as well. Right. Angry Anderson and Mel Gibson are credited among the stuntmen at the end of the film, believe it or not. Tina Turner isn't, but I'm I'm damn sure that there's there's a scene where she's sort of hanging off the side of a vehicle or something. It really does look like it, there's a like a close-up, you know. It it looks like she's doing enough to justify a stunt credit. So fair fair play to the, the, the stars who come into this franchise, you know. Um they 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 know they're coming in to sort of get their hands dirty and they're gonna be thrown about and hanging off moving vehicles and stuff. And I think I think they, they sort of know that's gonna happen and they go with it. Mm. Um, I think one of the problems is that you set this franchise up as a car franchise. 
yeah, by the third yeah. film, and there's just not enough car action. This, this isn't you know. a car movie. Yeah, no. it's not what people wanted, and I think Miller recognised that in Fury Road. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, boy, does he recognise that. I think. Um, I mean, one one thing one thing they do here is that it's, it's it's got this whole Hollywood thing about it. In and one one example of that is you can imagine a meeting about you know you can imagine executives meeting about the film and someone suddenly suggesting around the table, hey, you know we have that character the feral kid in mad max 2 how great was he you know well if he was great on his own what if we had 50 feral kids in this one and it's like the william goldman thing you know william goldman in adventures in the screen trade commented on on hollywood working in that sort of way and you can imagine a wry commentator like goldman sort of looking at mad max beyond thunderdome and thinking oh yeah i'm i can rather than rather than then sitting back and enjoying the movie i'm imagining what the hollywood meetings were like you know it's it's also very very second hand there's a i mean um, there are little references and names that pop up throughout the film that are just that, that just seem lifted directly from early 80s culture like i've, I've mentioned already that uh, tina turner refers to the day after which of course was was the name of uh, um, the, the the sort of nuclear TV movie, and you get things like um, Atomic Cafe being referred to, and Master Blaster, you know, which we, you know, you hear that name, and you're in the audience again thinking, well, they've just they've just stolen that from a Stevie Wonder record, you know, why why couldn't they have come up with a better name? Because the Master Blaster character is fantastic, you know, uh, the idea of this 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 sort of single character made up of two people is great and having Angelo Rossito in there who's who sort of goes back to silent films you know he was making films in the 20s and he's in stuff like Freaks in the early 30s and he was still doing it up to about 1990 I think so uh, a great figure to have and this is one of his best films I think uh, Beyond Thunderdome he makes yeah, a real impact I think yeah yeah um, and uh, but yeah, it's all got this sort of second-hand feel to it. I, I think Frank Frank Thring is fantastic as the MC in Thunderdome, but again, he gets far too little to do. And what he does do is basically just Joel Grey in Cabaret. Mm-hmm. Again, there's it's, a lot. We, we, there's a lot of that it, channeling of other stories yeah, yeah, through the yeah. Mad Max lens, isn't there? Yeah, you know, yeah. the, they, the whole they idea even, of bad yeah, as as we've said, they even rip themselves off by bringing Bruce Spence back. Yeah. It's just got this sort of lazy feel to it, you know. And the elements do all sort of add together and make an entertaining film. But it's just, it, it, it really has just got this will-this-do sort of feel to it. I think it's a tricky one in the sense that, I, I, like I mentioned before, the world feels like there should be more to it. There should be more yeah, to the world yeah. of Mad Max. But actually, it's really hard to expand on this kind of a world and make it bigger. And they make it a little bit bigger by doing the bath time. Then as we get into Fury Road, they kind of like go back, but they expand it in the ways of the way of of society, I guess. And they have like the yeah. God King style character in yeah. that. But I, I think I think Fury Road's interesting in that they 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 sort of partly expand it and partly strip it right back to its roots, and and they they make a perfect mixture out of those things. You know, uh, they take all of the best elements of the franchise so far and mix it up to absolute perfection. Mm. Yeah, so let's get into Fury Road because like there's there's a there's a hell of a gap between the two films, isn't there? You know, like 1985 and 2015. Yeah, well, let me put a question to you, Adam, because you you would have been you, you I, I you know because of your age, I was seeing these films as they came out in the cinema, but you would have caught up with them later on. Mm. But uh, but when Fury Road was announced. What what did you think, and what do you think the general sort of perception was among cinema audiences, with with there being this big gap? I think I think because there was so much time beforehand, because they were recasting Max, it was being treated like a reboot. But as we know from the franchise, you know, every story stands on its own. Is it even the same Max we're watching? You know, it doesn't matter, does it? Almost who plays Max in some ways. I don't think that I don't think there was a massive negative feedback. I can't remember when the Mel Gibson backlash had begun when he was going through all those hassles and troubles. But I feel like that was probably in the zeitgeist where, yeah. yes, we would normally would we want 
we would want Mel back in Max, but he's been such a horrible person at the moment. That's, that's a great point because if you compare that to Indiana Jones, there, there were there were these suggestions they were going to bring in a new Indy or a young Indy or someone who was sort of going to replace Harrison Ford. Um, and and the, the outcry about that was immense. And here it was different. And I think that was because of uh, Mel's own sort of personal problems. Mm. I think people looked at it and thought, well, I want a Mad Max film, but we can't have one if Mel Gibson's going to be involved. So I understand that, you know, and then they kind of moved on. Yeah. But I think uh, one of the big things for me, because I remember they started shooting this. This film was in... Obviously, it was it was. I think he came up with the idea in eighty seven for the yeah, film, yeah, yeah. and then like you know, it stewed on it for years, and eventually got it green lit in two thousand and ten. Yeah, passed it in two thousand and eleven, shot it in two thousand and twelve, <laughs> two thousand reshoots in two thousand and thirteen, and then it came out in two thousand and fifteen. So that's like it was announced five years before it actually came out. So I think one of the big things for me was that. I think people thought it was going to be awful. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like all these words of reshoots, all these words of sort of like, oh, you know, it's been five years in development, five years in production. Obviously, something's wrong with it. They've had to really scramble with the edit and and, and, and do reshoots and stuff. And then you watch the film and you realise... Well, of course it took five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look at it. You know? I know, I know. Well, are, are we are we saying it's the best of the series? Oh, without doubt. Without doubt. Without doubt. I mean, Mad Max 2 is incredible. Yeah, but it's the perfect synthesis of all of the other the, the three other films. It, I think it takes all of the best parts of the first three movies and sort of smashes them together, makes a new story out of it, makes a, 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 a story that seems to fit and seems to sort of continue the, the saga and is absolutely amazing, you know, and, and has got all the stuff in that we've already talked about, like... Um, Max again taking a background seat. You know he's taking a back seat to everything. You've got a, an opportunity for some of the big names to come on, like Charlize Theron, and, and make a big impact. But for minor supporting characters to come on as well. I mean, I mean, the, the, again, I talked about when when someone says Mad Max Two, what what do you think? Well, when someone says Fury Road to me, the image that pops into my mind is that guy clad in red. Playing his guitar with a flamethrower, shooting flame out of the end of it. He's he's Mad Max Fury Road to me. That is that's the defining image of twenty first century cinema to me. Yeah, it's, it's um, incredible, it's brilliant. Image, and and he's he's on he's on screen every now and then. He's on screen about four times throughout the film for about ten seconds. And well, yet, the, the, the the incredible so thing is that like, just the idea of scoring your own action scene in oh, the it's, film. It's, 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 it's just incredible to the point where he gets punched in the face. Yeah, There's yeah. a scene where Mad, Mad Max is fighting yeah. this guy, punches him in the face, he falls back, Mad Max jumps away, and he immediately just starts playing the he guitar. Just plays again. The guitar. It's, it's like as though he's sort of programmed to do it. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's so, so good. And and this happens with other characters throughout the, the chase as well. And again, the, the idea that, yeah, out of all the stuff we presented to you so far, what you guys loved was the big chase in Mad Max 2. Well, what if he, what if we give you that for two hours? Yeah. Yes, please. I mean, that first yes, 30 please. minutes, that first 30 minutes of Mad Max Fury Rose, well, up you, to the point where the... the, the yeah. The storm hits, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You're and you start, that's the first it. moment where you just go, yeah, yeah. Oh, and you take a breath. It's like, yeah, my yeah. God, that's 30 minutes. Yeah. And you're just thrown in right from the start. Yeah. And again, there's no preamble. It's just like, you you guys want a chase. Bang, here is one, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's wonderful how they do it. They they have they have the little sort of somber voiceover and the introduction of Tom Hardy and the bit where he steps on that lizard in that very cool way. And then suddenly, eighteen vehicles roar over the hill into action, and it's like the audience is just like it, it just takes your breath away. Yeah. And then, as you say, it's it's we 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 don't get a chance to rest, you know. We're, we're I know, I know we're talking about chance. not using too many car puns, but it is like they looked at the Mad Max vehicle and said, we don't need gears one through four. Let's just stay with fifth gear and then carry on from there. 
One one great thing they do, of course, is uh, they they bring back Hugh Keysburn, the toe cutter from uh, from the original Mad Max, and uh, again he's playing this the, he's playing the big boss now, the, the 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 sort of chief of of the the sort of township, the the sort of Tina Turner figure of this movie, if you like, um, called Immortan Joe, and uh, again there's this ambiguity there: is he the toe cutter? Has he somehow survived the events of Mad Max? Is he a relation of his? Is is he a brand new character? Is he nothing to do with that? When we're not told, we're left to fill in the gaps, and this again continues that that uh, tradition of the series. But what a, what a fantastic uh, figure he is! I think so many years has gone between Mad Max One and and and, and Mad Max Fury Road that Hughie's burn just looks completely different, and in, yeah. particularly yeah. in yeah. this movie as well. Yeah, but I think for the fans, because you know it's the same actor, it's it's there. You know, you you you. You've sort of got that. Yeah. Um, are, we, are we going to talk about the sort of fan theories on Fury Road? Because well, I, don't, we, I know you've got a really favourite fan theory, haven't you, over, over who the Mad Max character is, Mad Max Fury Road? This isn't mine, Adam. It's something that I picked up from other people sort of discussing on online, you know, but I'll, I'll, I'll put this forward anyway. And I, I think we've, we've sort of touched on it a little bit already. You sort of mentioned things earlier on that sort of touch on this. And I'm not saying I agree with this, but I'm saying, again, it's nice that it's out there as part of the ambiguity, as part of the ether of these films. You know, there are, there are two things here in, in Mad Max Fury Road. One theory that I've seen people put forward is that what we're watching is Tom Hardy playing the feral kid from Mad Max 2. And I, I think I, I don't necessarily agree with that. And the one reason I don't is I think when you look at Tom Hardy's movements in the film, I think he's clearly studied the way that Mel Gibson moves. When you see him walk or run in a scene, he's he's not walking like Tom Hardy does. He's walking like Mel Gibson does in the early Mad Max films. I think he's he's done his homework there. And he's of course he's credited on the opening credits right at the start. It says um, uh, Tom Hardy as Max Rokotansky, Charlize Theron as Imperator Furiosa, you know, is, is the, yeah. the big title card at the front. But uh, um, so, yeah, we're told he's playing Max Rokotansky. What's interesting in the film, and again, it, this is done in other films as well, as we've said, is that uh, there's this big play on the fact that he won't tell anyone his name. And the, the fans that have put forward this theory that, well, what we're watching is the feral kid grown up. I, I think that's backed up by the use of, of the name Max in the film. If it is the feral kid, he's, he's trying to pretend to be a version of Max Rokotansky in order to continue that tradition and continue that myth. Maybe he's heard that the real Max has died or something, or maybe he's, he's just vanished into the wilderness and the feral kid grown up wants to carry on that, that, that sort of mythology. He won't tell anyone his name until right near the end of the film, he says, my name is Max. And it's almost as though, if this is the feral kid, it's almost as though he now feels right after all I've been through in this movie, I've now earned the right to claim the name Max Rokotansky. So, yeah, I, I can sort of see that. I, I don't I don't either. I don't either. I think we're watching Tom Hardy playing the same character that Mel Gibson plays. But the theory holds water, is what well, I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, as we talked about earlier, I think if, I think if the, the feral kid sees Max as a hero, yeah, sees yeah. Max as a, as a mythological character that if he was taking on that role, he would have much more direct involvement. He would be the, the hero. He would want to be that hero because that's how he sees Max. But this character doesn't act like that. He doesn't, he's almost begrudgingly ends up helping. He acts, he acts like Mad Max in the yes. other films to the, to, the point, to the point where for the first 45 minutes of this one, he's a hood ornament. Exactly. 
You know, he doesn't do any. He's he's doing, and and you can see the Mel Gibson Mad Max being like that as well. Again, as we've said all along, he takes this sort of back back seat in the films. You know, and here, you know, he's 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 taking the ultimate back seat. He he doesn't do anything. You know, um, and uh, and again, brilliantly, they they very cleverly riffed on the fact that they've got Tom Hardy in the part. By turn, he's not only a hood ornament; he's a bane hood ornament. You know, he's 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 mumbling through a grill. You know, it's brilliant. So very very clever. The the other theory that's been put forward is that the Mad Max of the film is actually played by Charlize Theron. Um, pe- people have done this bit of conjuring with her name. Her character is called uh, Imperator Furiosa. And I, again, I don't know that this entirely holds water, but people have said, well, you know, Imperator Furiosa, if you, if you, if you bring that right back into basic English, can you interpret those words as meaning ultimate fury or in, in another, in another way, put another way, maximum mad mm-hmm. or for short, Mad Max. So and and again, she she is the main character in this film. Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. much more than Hardy. But again, that for me, as we've been discussing this franchise, ties it more into her not being Mad Max because she has a goal, she has a a, a plot. That's she has she's a purpose doing stuff, in this yeah. movie. She's doing stuff that the Mad Max yeah. that we know wouldn't do, and Tom Hardy is doing the stuff that Mad Max would do, i.e., being being knocked around, being tied up, buying used, being used, and and uh, and and yeah, she she's a genuine hero. You know, yeah. she's a heroine here, and 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 Max Max. If he is a hero at any point, it's, it's almost accidental throughout the four films. You know? I think begrudgingly rather than accidental. I think he makes that decision to be a hero, like he does in all the films. Becomes a yeah. point in the movie where he he has to he has to make a decision. Does he? Yeah, he, you know, he has one to way or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that great bit in Mad Max Two, for instance, where he's um, he's he's in the little township thing that that sort of preempts Barter Town and 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 the the the, the town in the in in Fury Road, you know, it's the first version of that. It's this first little settlement, and Gibson sort of moping around and oh, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to help you. And they're saying why, why? And he's saying, well, my my wife and kid are, are dead, you know. And and the leader of the town sort of uh, um, pulls him up and says, do you, do you not think that's happened to all of us? Mm. And it's a moment where we're we're watching Max as is it is the title character. We, he's been set up towards the audience as being the hero of these films. And we're suddenly pulled up as well. And we think, oh, right, yeah, he's, he, he's, he's wrong here. He is too immersed in his own world to, to see what he can do for the greater good. And, and this, again, filters through brilliantly to parts of Fury Road, I think, um, where the scenes where he's being chased right at the start of the movie through that maze of tunnels, he's, he's, he's terrified, you know, and, and, we're, and we're scared for him. And this isn't this isn't a heroic character. It's all it's it's very akin to what you sometimes get in in, in the Indiana Jones movies, where you get the sense that Indy's out of control and Indy's lost. He's he's not in charge of the situation. He's being chased by people, or he's he's being faced by some kind of outrageous trap or something, and. He doesn't quite know how to get out of it, you know. And, and he I, had that I, great moment at the start where he jumps and uses his chains to hang onto the hook. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. it's a brilliant moment, and then they just drag him back in. Yeah, that's it's it. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was a great yeah, moment, yeah, but yeah. didn't didn't work for you, did it? You, he, you still even, hold on. Even, even even when he seems to have got away from them on the chain, if you stop and think about that. What's he going to do next? Yeah, yeah. It can't go anywhere. And yeah, as you say, they they just reel him in. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and and it is in any other movie, in 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 a Tom Cruise movie, that would be the start of a big big stunt scene where we'd be thinking there, right? How's Tom Cruise going to get out of this now? Knowing that he would get out of it, knowing that he'd leap onto some some 
you know, some rock in in 50 feet away or something, or that somebody would come past with a vehicle and he'd dive onto that, or that he'd dive into a pool of water a million feet below, you know. And here, we we think, because it's Mad Max, we're thinking, this isn't going to go well, is it? <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a vulnerable character, is what I mean. Oh, yeah, you know, he's, he's just... He's just yeah. He, he, all, all his control, all his main thought is survival, and the, yeah. and the most of this, most of his his life is his pure thought is survival, and that yeah. doesn't get you anywhere, does it? In this, in in that kind of world, you know, you no. can't think beyond that. No, I, I love at the end of this film again that the the, the mytho- is sort of part mythology and part the fact that this character is very much a background figure and is insignificant in this world, in that he, he just disappears into the crowd and yeah. there's no fanfare or anything, you know. He just goes and we're left with Charlize Theron as the hero of the film, which she is. Mm-hmm. What about her and what about her, her part in the chase and in the, the way this film pans out? Yeah, she's she's incredible in this film. She really she does. She does what we wanted Tina Turner to do. I think. Yeah, she she but she's got she's got the motivation. She's got the drive. She's got the the need to do stuff in this movie, and that comes through the single focus of her of her plotline in this thing is to protect those girls in yeah, in, yeah. in the truck. And yeah, she was willing to die for that, and that comes across in the way that she plays the role. Yeah, she's great. Given- she's really great. Given her presence at the centre of this film, given the mission that she's on, involving these these girls who are who are basically sort of you know part of a baby farm sort of thing, and also given the fact that when they reach their destination and they find out it's not quite what they wanted it to be, but it is populated by a, 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 um, a population of, of ageing female characters who, again, they might be ageing female characters, but they're all wild warriors, you know, and they then they then take part in the action on, on the way back, you know. Um, is, is, is there a case to say, is, is it too strong to say this is a feminist film? No, um, no, I don't think so. I think, it, I think it's, a, it's strong. I guess it depends on what you, what you declare as, a, as a, what a feminist film is. All the female characters have agency in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah. Is, does that make it feminist? I, I, guess, I guess. I mean, it's a strong female character. Of, of a sort, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, people might take issue with that term, but I think, I think yeah, you, you, you've hit it there by saying the, the female characters seem to drive the story and seem to to have an influence over what's going on a lot more than the male characters do. Well, for instance, we, we've got Max tied up as a hood ornament for the first third of the film. As you've said, the, the great flamethrowing guitarist is basically there as... Or, he's ornamental as well, you know, he's, he's functional. He's not there to get involved in fight scenes. He's not there to make decisions. There's really, there's really only Hugh Keysburn who's sort of making decisions for everyone on the one side he's sort of telling everybody what to do and how to get involved in the chase and he's barking out orders to people and i think charlie's theron is sort of doing that but she's prepared to listen to other people as well and and she's particularly prepared to listen to other women mm-hmm. i think i think it's an interesting one but i think uh, for a film that's so visual and so uh, action led all the characters have have, have a plot line, particularly obviously the the, the the Nicholas Holt's character, the wild boy character. Oh yeah, yeah, it's great. a great great story arc for him. Yeah, yeah. You know, going from that sort of like unthinking, mindless tool of 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 Hugh Keysburn to to becoming his own person, yeah, having yeah. agency over his own own decisions. Well, again, we we you know this this continues the series tradition where. As as we've said, characters in the other films swap allegiances. They they switch sides. Aside from the sort of female driven plot, I think the, the the sort of key male story here is his story. And um, and again, he's a very vulnerable, weak sort of character who discovers himself. Yeah, absolutely. In a way that Mad Max never will. No, when Mad Max has those moments where 
he has to make, he's forced to make, he, he, he feels like he's the character that leaves it until the very last minute to make yeah, a decision. Yeah, yeah. And then when that decision, he makes the right decision yeah. at the and right again, time. And again, he's very Indiana Jones in that respect. You know, Indy's a bit like that, in a more comedic sort of way. He plays, he plays that idea for laughs. But yeah, it is very much, oh yeah, I'll get away with whatever I can. I'll be a bit of a con man, you know, I'll, I'll try and schmooze my way through life. And then when push comes to shove, I've got to get out the whip or get out the gun or whatever, you know, or throw a fist mm. in the right place at the right time. And and Max is very much like that, but in a more sort of they they don't they don't sort of play it for laughs in this series. He's a much more down the line character. I think with his character, it's less about making the decision to to do action and more a case of making a, a, almost like a. Um, moral decision or a political decision yeah, or you know yeah, yeah. It, it, um it's that kind of a, a decision he's making it's not I, I need to get involved in the action here it's, it's like this is a this is a moral situation where i need to make a decision where i stand and those those points are interesting because he seems a very self-centered character mm. and one a person who's sort of in it for himself and in it for survival as you said earlier but i i, I think he reaches the in the, the Mad Max series is unusual, I think, here, in that those points where he does get to um, the very end of the line and he has to make a decision, they're, they're the points where he realises he can't be self-centred anymore, that, he's, that he's, made, he's suddenly in a situation where he's got to make a decision that involves other people and that affects other people. And I think that's that's the heart of the Max character, is that... Although he's a loner figure, I think there is this point that he reaches where he thinks, "No, I've, I've now got to be a man of the people." Mm. Yeah, he has to. He has to be pushed to that, though. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's a fascinating aspect of this character. Uh, yeah, and 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 like we said before, it feels like you can come back. They're already talking about. They're about to start shooting a prequel called Furiosa, which is about young. Furiosa, and then they're yeah, also yeah. talking about doing a sequel to this. But as we know, it won't be a sequel like most sequels are. <laughs> you know, it'll be another story involving Max. Yeah, well, what, what whatever they do, I'm now convinced that that you know, if if George Miller's involved and at the helm of it, that they're, they're going to put the effort in to make sure they get it right. Because Fury Road could not be any more right. You know, I mean, how do you follow Fury Road? Well. I know, I know. <laughs> it's like... They've they've done the chase thing in this one. I wonder if in a in a in a, a, a further film, if they might look at the sort of township elements that have been in all all four of the movies really so far, certainly in two, three, and four, and and maybe go down that route somehow and try and try and perfect that in the way that they perfected the car chase in Fury Road. Well, we shall see, and whatever we are witnesses to the uh, <laughs> to the amazing spectacle that is the Mad Max franchise. Cool. Thank you very much for joining me today, Daryl. Uh, thank you, people out there, for listening. Uh, we'll be back in another couple of weeks with another great podcast for you to listen to. Please do check out our Facebook page, our website, and our, if you feel so inclined, do join our Patreon as well, where you get a bonus episode every month and you get early access to our podcasts. Okay, take care and we will see you again soon.